The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A little over a month ago, a Chinese food delivery man was shot and killed in Queens, New York. The Daily News headline that day read, Beloved Chinese food delivery man fatally shot in Forest Hills, Queens. May have been stray bullet. Victim. Unsung hero. Now, I saw that phrase, beloved Chinese food delivery man. I said there's no such thing. I felt bad, of course, very bad about it. But I think it was a little posthumous reputation inflation. How does a delivery man become Beloved. Hey, honey, do you want to go out for dinner tonight? No, let's order in. That great delivery guy could bring it. I hate the food there, but what a fantastic delivery man. But you know, the more I heard about this beloved delivery man, the more I came to think he really was beloved. According to WNBC, he had a huge impact on neighbors. Left tonight for Zhu Wenyan, the friendly delivery driver who made a difference in this community. He was just the heart and soul of Forest Hills. We're all obviously a little shaken. He was someone that was very instrumental in the community. But remember that Daily News headline about might have been a stray bullet? Okay, good attempt at scaring us. Tabloids need to do that, but nuh-uh. This bullet had Zhu Wenyen's name on it. New York Post headline days later, cops eye angry customer in fatal shooting of Chinese food delivery man, sources. Actually, it should have said sauces. Because poor Zhu Wenyan died in a duck sauce-related dispute. Sources said cops are now eyeing a 50-year-old customer who had an ongoing beef, orange, crispy, with staff at Great Wall at Queens Boulevard, allegedly menacing them with a gun in January and twice vandalizing vehicles. Daily News. The customer's month-long beef, that's rotten by now, with a Queens Chinese restaurant over duck sauce is now being eyed by NYPD detectives as a possible motive for the fatal shooting of a well-liked delivery man, the Daily News has learned. Okay, so in the headlines, he's beloved. In copy, he's well-liked. The manager of the restaurant telling the Daily News that he first crossed paths with the subject in November, when he picked up an order of Chinese food, grabbed duck sauce from a self-service station, then left, only to return moments later with a complaint, you didn't give me enough duck sauce, the customer said, according to Yang, the manager of Great Wall. The man called the cops. The store refused a refund. Take as much as you want. It's free. And then someone slashed Yang's tires and someone damaged the locks on the door until, and then, of course, the delivery man was killed. Five days ago, an arrest was made. Glenn Hirsch, 51, condiment glutton. Let's see if we could get through this one without any beef references, the coverage of the day in the post. Yang said Hirsch's beef, nope, with Great Wall began in November when he complained that he was shorted on duck sauce after picking up the order. Yang told the Post last month that workers, including Yan, had wrestled the alleged gunman to the floor until police showed up during the gun incident. Hirsch was eventually arrested. It took a while. They pretty much thought it was him, but they took a while too cross their T's, dot their I's, and make sure there was enough duck sauce in the order. And after the arrest, we thought we were done with the saga of the duck sauce killer. Oh no. Here's the post again. Cops searching for guns at the Briarwood home of suspect Glenn Hirsch made a bizarre discovery, the source said, quote, when they were doing their search of the place for weapons, they looked in the refrigerator 
And there were all these condiments, the official said. The whole fridge was filled with duck sauce. And it was not just duck sauce, the source added. It was condiments. It was duck sauce. It was ketchup. It was weird. Chinese eatery owner, quote, can't go near duck sauce after delivery man's murder. The owner of the Chinese restaurant whose delivery man was killed in an alleged duck sauce dispute says he is barely staying afloat, struggling to find delivery workers, and can't even go near duck sauce now. I don't want to touch it, says Ken Yang, owner of Great Wall in Queens, to the Post on Sunday. I can't, because it brings back bad memories. Yang visibly jumped back when a Post photographer asked the owner if he would pose for a photo holding a duck sauce container. Great job, New York Post. The paper did helpfully include a photo of duck sauce unheld by human hands. It is on offer at Great Wall as we speak. Just in case we were wondering, what's a packet of duck sauce look like? I hear so much about duck sauce and killings, but I need a visual on that. Glenn Hirsch faces life imprisonment if he's convicted. On the show today, the retweet that melted down a newsroom. But first, some say the power in Washington can be found in the purse strings. Others say it's who controls the narrative. But my guest, James Kerchick, hypothesizes that in our capital, power goes to the holder of the greatest secrets. He's the author of the new book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Kerchick explains that in Washington, D.C., being secreted and closeted was necessitated for decades and decades by a fear of leaking secrets. James Kerchick, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every city in the United States can tell of its history with 
gayness, LGBT-dom, what at a time was called homosexuality. And to a large extent, the through line is the same. The love that dare not speak its name didn't speak its name and people's reputations were at stake. So of course there had to be underground homosexual communities, but Washington's a little different. And in this new authoritative book about being gay in DC and the history thereof, James Kerchick puts his finger on the phenomenon of, well, as the book says, Secret City, the hidden history of gay Washington. James, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. And that's it, isn't it? Secret City isn't one of these titles like, oh yeah, that would be good. It is so essential to understanding what drove so many people underground and lives to be ruined in Washington, D.C., the urgency Mm. to keep secrets. Yeah, well, you can think of secrecy as a form of currency in Washington, D.C., in the same way that, say, fame or celebrity is the marker of status in Hollywood, your access to secrets is what gives you power in Washington. And that starts around World War II when America becomes this global superpower and starts building a national security bureaucracy. And this is what makes, I think, homosexuality such a compelling subject uh, through which to study Washington is that there was no worse or more dangerous secret that you could have than that of being gay. Um, It goes from being a sin, something that's just condemned in the Bible, and it's a mental illness, right? That's how homosexuality was universally considered. It goes from a sin to being a national security threat because the fear is that gay people can be blackmailed, that they'll be susceptible to blackmail because they'll do anything to protect this terrible secret. And then later with uh, the rise of Joe McCarthy, homosexuality gets conflated with communism. Uh, And the Red Scare has a lavender component called the Lavender Scare. And the fear is that all these sort of sexual nonconformists or sexual subversives are also gonna be political subversives. Right. So the idea that there was a vulnerability to the homosexual because of blackmail, was this a legitimate fear? I mean, was this just a notion that people concocted and said it must be true? Or were there many cases that people could point to and say, see, that person's homosexuality sort of exposed and made us all vulnerable? So the basis of this belief, it was a uh, an Austro-Hungarian intelligence officer named Colonel Alfred Radel who in 1913 gets caught spying for the Russians. And they're so embarrassed in Vienna that they basically put out this story that he was blackmailed because he was gay. And he happened to be gay, but not until many years later after the Russian archives opened do we realize that this was not true, that he was actually just greedy and he had a very expensive lifestyle. He had a a cellar full of wines. He had four cars. He wanted money. But the story, it becomes a legend. And Alan Dulles, who's the first civilian director of the CIA, he had been stationed as a very young diplomat, as a foreign service officer in Vienna in the immediate aftermath of this scandal. And the city was just sort of, it was still living under the shadow of Colonel Radel's treason. And it becomes very influential in Alan Dulles's mind and basically all these Western intelligence officers. And this is the only case that they can point to. And in fact, after the Cold War ended, the Defense Department commissioned a study where they looked at over 100 cases of treason, of, of American people in positions, uh, government positions who gave away secrets 
Um, and there were six people who did it because who who did it who who were gay. Six people who were gay, but not a single one of them did it because they were blackmailed. Mm-hmm. So there actually was so, so there actually was never a single example yeah. of a gay person of a of a gay person blackmailed into giving information because they're gay. And I, I actually come up with a, with with an example of a, of a gay man. He happened to be a journalist, Joe Alsop. Alsop, who was, who, they, they got him. They nailed him. They gay got him. He the was Russians like... nailed him. <laughs> the Russians in, in 1957, they set him up with a handsome young man at a hotel. They took photographs. The next day, these KGB officers bust in. They try to get him to become uh, basically an, an asset for them in Washington. He declines and writes a letter to the government, uh, to the FBI, oh, he writes it. He gives it to the CIA. Mm-hmm. It ends up in J. Edgar Hoover's hands. But he goes through the entire story. He he describes his home, his gay history. He says, "I'm a I've been a homosexual since I was a young man. This is this is an act of great folly, but I'm admitting it to you." So he actually did exactly right. what he would have been supposed to do, and yet the government persists in this very destructive policy. And that didn't destroy that didn't destroy his career though, Elsa. No, it didn't. Yeah. He's he's a rare example of someone. But he wasn't who, he wasn't a government employee. He was he was a journalist and also he wasn't uh he he was so such a powerful connected to the Roosevelts that he kind of made his yeah, he he was his own free agent and and sought after, yeah. He's not the best example of 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 someone because there were far more people who had no power, who had no influence and who were in similar situations as him and lost their jobs. But it's funny, again, in the 19, early 1970s, those same photographs that had been taken 15 years earlier started appearing in mailboxes across Washington. The Soviets, we think it was the Soviets, it could have been some other intelligence agency, who knows, but they were sending them to his enemies in Washington. Now, that it's interesting because today, let's say if, uh, I don't know, if Jim Acosta got photographs of Tucker Carlson in a compromising position, presumably he would do something with them, right? They'd probably be on Twitter in, a, in an instant. But this was an older kind of Washington. And, you know, Joe Alsop had these relationships with people that even his worst enemy, uh, Art Buchwald, who was a columnist at the Washington Post, he was not going to do anything with these photographs. Although what would be a compromising position for Tucker Carlson? Hugging an immigrant? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, you're in the book. There are plenty of examples of people falsely accused of being gay. And sometimes if those people have the wherewithal and power to get out of it, they do. But sometimes their career is ruined. There are people who were gay and were accused and lives were destroyed and sometimes, uh, you know, driven to suicide. And there were there was the rare person who was actually caught up in a homosexual sting operation to no effect and nothing happened. The entire book is a story of a panic about homosexuality where unlike communism, there are no bona fide examples of this panic having any justification. And I should add that even the people who you know, show themselves to be at least on the side of uh, what we would think of the moral stance now. John F. Kennedy, let's say, who had not only no problem with homosexuality, were friends with homosexuals and hated the people against them. Like, all of those people did kind of believe, yeah, well, it is a liability. We have to watch out for this, which is the self-reinforcing loop. It is, and I think it's something as a historian, as a writer, as a journalist, or as a reader, you have to put yourself in the context of the times in which you're writing about. And so this was a universally held belief. There are very rare examples. There's one journalist, Max Lerner, who was a a writer for the New York Post back when it was a liberal paper. And he does this great series in 1950 called The Washington Sex Story, when Washington was really in this panic. And he interviews 
the chief of police who's arresting gay people in sting operations. He interviews people on Capitol Hill. And he can't come up with, as you say, any evidence of gay people being potential spies. And he kind of calls this out for being hysterical. But he's such a rare example. I mean, there's hardly anyone um, is is questioning this. And so I think one thing I've learned writing this book was just to be very skeptical of sort of, you know, the hysteria du jour or whatever the moral panic is, because particularly as a, as a gay person and you read a book like this, or even as a straight person, you look back on this era now and we shake our heads or we laugh sometimes when we read these quotes of what they're describing. Right. But you have to understand this is what everyone believed. Yeah. So here, there's a hero that I hadn't heard of beforehand in the book. Let's go through the presidents. I, I think you'd go from uh, Roosevelt to Clinton. Yeah. Um, generally, they were all they all showed themselves to be fairly decent people, even at times Nixon, I should say. But no one really took that firm a stand. But from going through the record, who would you say uh, judged against the standards of their time? acquitted themselves the best? And who are you most disappointed with? Well, they're pretty all bad <laughs> on this issue. Um, I mean, you mentioned JFK earlier. He's interesting. I mean, look, the policies of the Kennedy administration were no different than those of his predecessor or his successor. They were still purging gay people. Yeah. He, as an in, he as an individual had a much more enlightened attitude about homosexuality. And there's several reasons for this. One is that his best friend, Lem Billings from Choate, uh, his, his very best friend, was gay. And he was very relaxed around Lem, obviously, and it didn't bother him that his best friend was gay. And he invited sort of other gay men into his orbit, like Gore Vidal or Truman Capote or William Walton, who was the arts advisor right. to Jackie in the White House. And then also, and this is just me kind of hypothesizing, I think Jack Kennedy had a very unorthodox sex life himself. Yeah. Which if the American public at the time discovered what his sex life was like would be appalled. And I think he understood this, and this maybe made him somewhat sympathetic towards gay men who also had unorthodox sex lives by the standards of their day, right? And so he he is he has a more relaxed attitude. Um, and then it's pretty – well, then Reagan is interesting too because Reagan, again, personally, we know, has gay friends. Nancy is just surrounded by gay men. I mean there's a photograph – that one of the, the pages in my photo insert – it's just it's called all the first ladies men and it's just photos of Nancy and all her her gay hairdressers and courtiers and you know Jerry Zipkin who was her walker brought her to society events but of course the policies of the Reagan administration uh, on the major issue of the day related to gay people AIDS was was terrible Bill Clinton um is an important figure and it's very fashionable now to hate the Clintons and the Clinton administration and to just tar them with, you know, all the sins of our current era. And certainly on gay rights, there were major missteps, the Defense of Marriage Act and um, the gays in the military, don't ask, don't tell. But you have to understand when Bill Clinton ran for president in 1992, he was the first presidential candidate of a major party to openly appeal to gay people as a voting block. He actually gave a speech a big fundraiser in Los Angeles that was directed towards gay people. That's a watershed moment. And then once he's elected, they are actively recruiting gay people to serve in the government. And just imagine how much of a dramatic change that is to go from decades of gay people being kicked out, purged, barred, 
from serving in government to now being welcomed. And then in 1995, he lifts the ban on gay people receiving security clearances, right? So he reverses that policy that we talked about earlier. So I think he's an important he's an important figure. And the book ends with Clinton because of that. Obviously, you know, gay history and gay issues go on for for years. But I decided to end it there, that I thought this is a book about the secrecy. Yeah. Uh, the secrecy and sort of the, the, the formal secrecy, the formal you know, mandate for secrecy ends in 1995. That's not, that's not to say the closet went away or that homophobia went away. But in terms of the context of the book that I've written, that seemed to me like the proper point to end it. And if readers want a quick glance at some of James's work, he wrote in Politico one of the chapters of the book, which was about how they, uh, how Republicans again tried to move <laughs> against Ronald Reagan for not just having uh, gay advisors, but possibly Ronald Reagan himself, according to these charges, was gay. A yeah. charge that was not proved. Give me a sense of the lavender scare. What was the scale of it? I mean, I, the numbers I've come across the uh, estimate from seven to ten to fifteen thousand, but it's it's hard hard to know because not every agency was reporting as diligently. You know, the State Department, because they were under such pressure, would would publish numbers every year. Um, and some other departments would as well. And from that, we can get a rough estimate. But it's very difficult to know. A lot of people probably quit before these investigations went full, went, went the entire way because they didn't want to get discovered. So they might have quietly left the service. And then there's just the numbers of how many people didn't even apply for jobs, mm -hmm. right? Because they knew I'm a, I'm a gay person. I have no, I mean, this is, isn't for me, right? And so you just think of the massive waste, the massive waste, the lives that were ruined, the talent that was denied our country um, because of this policy. I think it's, sa it's safe to say that it was as equal to or probably greater than the effect of the Red Scare, just in terms of the people who lost their jobs in the federal government. So... To try to put a sense on the cost of all this, there is just the fact that, you know, these are deeply immoral and unethical acts of discrimination. There is the fact that plenty of very well-qualified people were driven from public service or, you know, knew not to even apply. There was the waste of effort, government effort, official mm. effort. There was arming the worst people in America with a potent line of attack. You add it all up. How are we to conceptualize the costs of everything you write about in the book? Well, I can take a small example, um, which is the first story in the book is that of Sumner Wells, who was FDR's undersecretary of state, a brilliant diplomat. He basically wrote the Atlantic Charter. He was driven out of government service because of a gay scandal. He also happened to be one of the few people in the State Department who was remotely sympathetic to the plight of Jewish refugees in Europe uh, at the time of the Holocaust. If he had not been driven out of government, might our country have accepted more Jewish refugees? It's a counterfactual question, but it's worth asking. Um, that's just one small example. Right. Oftentimes, those kind of undersecretaries, two or three in charge, play an, an extremely crucial role. Right. You know, if you look at things that could have been worse, the Palmer raids, for instance, someone who is emboldened to do so uh, takes control and that could have been Hull. Yeah. And I also think with the Reagans, you know, we talked about them earlier, but I think the fear that Reagan and his wife, Nancy, and his very close advisors had that he would be perceived as too close to gays because of his Hollywood background, because of this scandal that that I discovered uh, that, that was excerpted in Politico last week, 
Um, there's an anecdote I tell about one of his first movie roles. He was basically told to play the role of, of a gay best friend right. in in a movie with Betty Davis, and he's very uh, sort of offended by this. You know, just playing the role of a of a someone who might be alluded to as being gay, because of course you couldn't explicitly show right. gay people in cinema um, in the 1930s. I think that that played a role in the really abysmal um, uh, policy or really ignorance of AIDS. Uh, I think there was this estrangement be- uh, from anything that would be perceived as being too queer, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. too too gay, uh, and I think that and I think that had an impact on Reagan and, and Nancy Reagan. I really I really do. Yeah. Although talking about counterfactuals, I mean, as we know, Ed Koch, mayor of New York at the time, was gay, and he was so afraid of the intimation that he was, that he was not yeah. a great uh, politician in terms of uh, responding to the AIDS crisis. And I think that goes to the point that I want to drive home, which is you know, we've talked about some villains. Um, we've talked about some bad policies that were pursued by the Reagans and Ed Koch. I think the real villain of this book is not any individual. It's the closet. You know, it's this, it's this what I refer to as the specter of homosexuality, that, that, it, that it transfixed and terrorized. It really terrorized us as a society, um, and it drove people to do terrible things. And you mentioned Ed Koch, and you know, my first, as a gay person, my first instinct or my first feeling about him, it's not anger or venom, it's pity, yeah. it's sadness yeah. that that this man, who let's not forget, this man represented Greenwich Village. He represented the heart of of the gay rights of the gay liberation movement. Stonewall was in his district, yeah. right? Even even he did not feel, for whatever reasons, that you know, these complicated reasons, that he felt the shame, that he could not come out. And he didn't come out at all until after, until he died, right? The New York Times just posthumously outed him a couple weeks ago. Who am I, really? Who am I, as a gay man growing up in a much better era and time, who am I to condemn him? I mean, we can, we can criticize him for the policies. Of course we can. Absolutely. We can criticize him for any policies that he pursued or didn't pursue as a public official. That's our duty as citizens. But as a gay man, I find it very hard to condemn this person who grew up under the shadow of the Lavender Scare. He he grew up at a time when being gay was a crime, when it would destroy your political career. And I think that's something that we all have to take into consideration when we're writing history history, and we're, and we're uh, reading it about gay people in this earlier era of our country. The name of the book is Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. It was written, and I was joined by James Kerchick. Jamie, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. A constellation of issues around free speech and firings have come up. And so, of course, America turns to me, its wisest and most prudent voice. I think of myself not so much as sage as healer on this issue. Okay, maybe it's not a constellation of issues. Maybe I could randomly cast a net any recent month and my trawlings would produce a couple professors, a journalist, an entire newsroom at Meltdown being fired, being suspended. But that is the catch of today. 
The professors are Ilya Shapiro, late of Georgetown, and Joshua Katz, who has the same relationship with Princeton. They held the kind of opinions that their institutions did not agree with. Katz also did a bad thing, but one he was punished for. I'll leave those guys to another day, if at all. So this means our constellation lacks its Alpha and Proxima Centauri of censoriousness, but it still has a certain gas giant to explore. In fact, no more constellation metaphors from here on. You know, a constellation's not really exact. It's a collection of stars that someone said, oh, that looks like a centaur, or that looks like twins. And speaking of by, oh my, Washington Post reporter Dave Weigel retweeted almost a week ago now a dumbish joke. It was, every girl is bi, you just have to figure out if it's polar or sexual. That bit of regurgitated wordplay caused a meltdown that imperils careers, degrades reputations, and who knows, to the combatants maybe provided something like the uncomfortable impetus for much-needed reform. Weigel's main torquemada is Felicia Sanmez, a politics reporter at The Post, who had recently lost a lawsuit against the paper, though she's still employed there. The details of the suit allege that editors took her off covering the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and other stories having to do with allegations of sexual assault because she herself was vocal on Twitter as a victim of sexual assault and as a critic of men in the public eye who had been accused of sexual assault. It should be noted her victimization was contested by the alleged perpetrator, a journalist who lost his job at the LA Times, and according to a detailed piece in Reason Magazine, struggled with suicide afterwards. The suit, by the way, lost on First Amendment grounds, the court reasoning that a newspaper can't be compelled to assign its reporters to certain stories or off certain stories by judicial intervention. Sanmez, the court also found, did not adequately show damages. But returning to the bipolar bisexual retweet, Weigel took it down and apologized. Sanmez continued in her public criticism. Their boss, the Post's top editor, Sally Busby, instructed employees to cool it on Twitter. Weigel was suspended for a month, reportedly without pay, and Sanmez continued to name and shame online, writing, I have long considered Dave a good friend. It's painful and confusing when friends say and do things that are wrong and makes it all the more uncomfortable to call them out, though it's necessary to do so. Others in the Post newsroom disagreed, and Sanmez replied to them that her public criticism was necessary and that she has taken so much abuse from random people on the internet that just shows how far our culture needs to go. And now we come to my analysis. I know you're waiting for it. A society or a subculture gets more of what it subsidizes. The bravery of women who are unafraid to call out abuse is finally being held up as righteous, and that is why the floodgates are opening. Or, when you cultivate a victim mentality and heap praise, accolades, and status on those who claim victimhood, you will get more claims of victimhood. Those, by the way, are the same arguments. One is phrased glowingly and one is framed negatively, but it's clearly what's going on. The institution, not just the Post, but so many institutions, are standing in the middle saying, regardless of the righteousness of the claim, there is such a thing as decorum and good sense and congeniality. But no, there really isn't, because 
if it's a righteous claim to the claimants, any imposition of norms or rules have to be thrown out the door. They're seen as just another form of oppression. Non-radicalized people follow those official edicts, but there are plenty of people within these newsrooms, within these institutions, who do not think the rules are just. And what are they supposed to do? What does every signal tell them to do? Tells them to protest publicly. The suspension of Dave Weigel, that doesn't do anything to assuage them or prevent them from, what was the phrase, from the uncomfortable but necessary call out, necessary. You actually expect rule following when a necessity is being denied? Listen to what they're saying. We need these things. This is a necessity. We can't go without them. So when the official edict is, you're going to have to go without criticizing people in public, it's not possible. What we are getting I think, with many of our big institutions, is a situation where the most disorderly people within them are being granted the power to be maximally disruptive. No one is there to impose rules, or the people that are there and tasked with rule imposition are too uncertain and unsure of what their standing will be if rules are imposed. I'm not just talking about quote-unquote woke cultural institutions. Think about the Republican Party. Think about the board of WeWork. In this ruleless environment, even if, say, 85% of an organization wishes for the roiling, never-ending conflict to stop, there is no mechanism or will to stop it. There will certainly be enough voices from the inside to keep the drama going and enough voices from the outside to cheer them on or to critique the antagonists in debates really unfairly, sometimes illegally even, death threats and the like. And you know what that does? That provides more propulsion for all the angst. The Weigel tweet, sorry, the the retweet, was at worst a microaggression. Now, depending on who you are, you had a certain reaction to that label when I just said it was a microaggression. You might say, yeah, that's right, it was nothing but a microaggression. Or if you're under mm, 36, 37, and we're schooled in microaggression recognition, you might say, it is a microaggression, which is pernicious, and this incident shows the value of recognizing it as such. Or if you're maybe a little older, maybe strongly identify as feminist, when I called it a microaggression, you might have said, how dare you diminish it? Insulting jokes from public figures are part of a cultural problem that's badly in need of overhauling. I see all points of view, but you know what mine is, that it is, it was a small matter that was turned into a causes belli and nothing was gained. We got a newsroom ripping itself apart instead of doing the work that we societally needed to do. So this is one teapot, the Washington Post. The Tempest overall will be and is playing out in lots of other places. When your values get challenged publicly, it's important to clearly articulate what you stand for. The part of it where the Washington Post says we're against sexism, check. But the part where they should have said, and we will not tolerate employees ripping into each other publicly and then expecting to continue on in their jobs as trusted purveyors of news, that was not done. A clear articulation of shared beliefs would have helped, but should have been articulated a while ago. So the Washington Post newsroom is hyper, both ventilating and sensitive. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. 
Michelle Pesca of Peachfish Productions once experienced her own lavender scare. It was about a misplaced paint swatch that somehow got mixed into the wrong sample. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeepru, Dupru, and thanks for listening. 